Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is the pastor's table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to the pastor's table. We're glad you're joining us. My name is Mark Quanstrom. And my name is Tara Beth Leach, and I am so excited. Today we have with us Dr. Beth Felker-Jones for a special episode, but we're going to be welcoming her on a regular basis for what we call setting the table. We want to set the table on the interactions uh, between practice and theology. And in the coming months, we are going to have so many different things to talk about And we're especially uh, glad to have Beth. She is going to be joining us for what we are calling the theologian in residence. And so she's going to help us set this table. She's going to help us think about what these interactions are between theology and practice. And Beth, I've I've known you for a long time. I I am embarrassed to say I fangirled you for a little bit. (laughs) I was a student at Northern Theological Seminary getting my Master's of Divinity, and I was taking a course on theology with Dr. Cherith Fee Nordling, and one of our textbooks was Marks of His Wounds. And I think up until that point, I I, I don't think I, I realized it or would have put it this way, but so much of my faith and theology was in a disembodied framework. Mm-hmm. And then I read your book. And everything just began to shift. And I remember reading your book and the ways that I thought about my faith being embodied, the ways I thought about my own body even, and even the ways I thought about eschatology and and resurrection began to shift. And so many different times reading your book, I was in tears. And the church that I was pastoring, there was a, a Wheaton professor there. She taught, I think, political science. And I asked her, I said, do you know Beth Felker-Jones? And she said, oh, I do. I said, oh, her book changed my life, really changed my life. And it was at a place in my faith, like where it was just, I was at such, I was almost at a, a crossroads. I, I wasn't sure where I belonged theologically, which tradition I belonged in. And your book really helped place that for me. And so she wrote an email to you and said, would you, would you have lunch with my pastor? And you actually said yes. You you met me at the Wheaton College cafeteria, and I was so nervous. I think I rehearsed so many different times the questions that I would ask you and the things that we would talk about. And you were so generous. You were so generous to me. And now here we are. We're friends. And we're... I think fondly of that conversation, and I'm still honored that my book meant something to you. Oh. It meant a lot to me. And so we are so thrilled to be welcoming you on this podcast on a regular basis. I first met Beth at lunch. I was being introduced to Northern and I had lunch with Beth and Dr. Lynn Kohick, had a delightful lunch and went out and purchased Practicing Christian Doctrine. And that was the first book I've read of hers. Just, it, it's, a, it's an academic book, but it's delightfully written. And Practicing Christian Doctrine is Dr. Felker Jones's interest, investment. That's her place. And she is interested in theologically informed practice. 
which is why we've invited her to be a part of this, because that's what this podcast is about. This is about theologically informed practice. And so we have asked her to speak into what it means to serve a God who was incarnate. That is no little confession. It is the center confession of our faith. The Word became flesh. Mm. And this is, as so to speak, in her wheelhouse, as you've heard. And so we're going to ask Beth Felker-Jones to speak into the practical implications, into the ministerial implications, the ecclesial implications of worshiping a God who is incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Delighted to be with you all from a pair of lunches to a pastor's table. If I'm going to be a resident theologian somewhere, a table is a great place it to, is. to be. It is. And how are you at setting tables? Minimally successful. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I love setting tables. I love especially having a dinner party and putting the little play cards out where, where people are going to sit and 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 thinking about you know where to place the glasses and and the centerpieces and so that's what we're gonna do we're I gonna set the table. I can imagine the beauty. I tend to a buffet with a plastic plate, there so you go. <laughs> we can do that too. <laughs> well, we'll do something in between today. And so, as we're starting, we would like Beth to tell us a little bit about her story. Yeah, happy to do so. I teach theology at Northern Seminary here in the Chicago area, and I've been teaching theology for 19 years. The reason I teach theology is because I love theology and I think it matters for the church. That's been my conviction from the beginning of my interest in academic theology, and that conviction only grows through the years of being a member of the body of Christ and of teaching for that body. Maybe a good way for me to introduce how that has worked in my life is actually to talk a little bit about Book Terabeth mentioned Marks of His Wounds, which grew out of my dissertation. And the way I came to that book and to bigger picture sort of writing and thinking about theology as it relates to our embodiment and to the incarnation was a mix of academic and personal things. And I think that's how theology often works, right? We get this mix of an idea and a thing going on in our lives. So I was in grad school learning about theology, loving it. I was an enthusiastic Christian before that, so a Christian faith wasn't new to me. But the parts of theology that kept jumping out as new to me were the parts having to do with the body, right? Mm. Those were the parts mm. which I hadn't heard very much about before. I knew about Jesus and his humanity. I hadn't thought about how important his embodiment is to that humanity, right? I knew about salvation, but I hadn't thought about the resurrection of the body as God's final salvific goal for, for us. And so those things were exciting to me because I felt like I hadn't really encountered them in a deep way before. But also because as a theology grad student, I was aware of and thinking about my own embodiment. My first year of my PhD work, uh, my husband and I were joyously surprised with our first child. And so they're in the midst of my nervousness about starting a PhD and about performing in those classes and interacting with professors. I was very, very aware of myself as an embodied, a gendered embodied person, right? With my pregnant belly going before me and very aware of how my sense of call as a theologian was going to need to interact with Mm -hmm. my call as a mother, as as our baby was coming into, into the 
world. And so I think as I really seized on what I was learning about the body, it mattered in this really personal way for me. Yeah. And I think that's that's just how this works. It's how it happens. It's it's a beautiful thing, right? Something in our lives that matters to us or in our ministries that matters to us is going to connect to some theology, some Christian teaching, some doctrine that we maybe knew before or maybe we're just getting into, but which we haven't felt come home in quite the way it will come home because of whatever's going on in our lives. So, so yeah, that's my calling. I love it. And I get to work with students who are doing all kinds of interesting ministry. And so we get to talk back and forth about the connections between theology and practice, theology and ministry, theology and discipleship, and the life of, of faith. And I believe that's a totally life-giving adventure. So Harold Bloom characterized American Christianity as Gnostic. Didn't he, though? Yes. Um, yeah. I rem- never, I'll never forget reading that line in his book. And that was the first time I had considered that the American expression of Christianity was embracing in different ways and in different degrees uh, that ancient platonic heresy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what we want to talk about today is what it means to confess that particular person, Jesus of Nazareth, as Lord of history. We worship the God who particularized God's self in Nazareth in the first century. Mm-hmm. It is the beginning point of our particular confession of faith. The Word became flesh. Mm-hmm. The implications of that will probably take an eternity to explore. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure we take Jesus' humanity seriously enough. We confess it, but I think we think of him as obviously divine. But I think we're practically docetic. He had the appearance of being a human, mm-hmm. but he was really God. Which is what the Gnostics want to claim about Jesus. Which is Jesus, what the Gnostics right? claim. He doesn't really have a body. He's not really in this mess with us. And no. Jesus kind of play-acted his way through his life. Mm-hmm. Right? His death on the cross wasn't a real death. Mm-hmm. He knew he was going to be resurrected. Mm-hmm. He was posturing. Mm-hmm. But this this confession that God was enfleshed is as radical a confession as we could find. Mm-hmm. What are some of the implications for pastors to confess Jesus of Nazareth as Lord? There are, of course, so many, but the the first one I think we want to pay attention to comes next there in John chapter one, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, right? Mm. That's about how we know God and live in an age in which, for some good reasons, a lot of people are suspicious about our ability to know God, right? Yeah. People suspect we're just making things up, that we're projecting, that we're crafting idols and, and, and so on. And we should be suspicious. We're sinners who are good mm-hmm. at crafting false gods. But the fact that the word became flesh and we have seen his glory means that we can know God, right? Jesus came in the flesh. Humans are flesh creatures. And the way we know things is in the flesh, right? The five senses that we learned in preschool or, or what have you. Because Jesus has come among us in the flesh, we've seen and heard and tasted and 
touched, mm-hmm. right? Yes. What's the other one? Smell. I suppose people smelled him too, though probably less than we think about. We don't think about that <laughs> this much these days. That's way too um, incarnate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not a huge incense fan, but theologically, I guess, you know, it's yeah. getting it's getting all those senses, yeah. right? We've seen and we've known. And then as the word became flesh and was seen and known in the senses, right? As Peter tells us by people who were eyewitnesses to, mm-hmm. to his majesty, that record then comes to us in the flesh-made word in the New Testament as well as in the Old, as we're able to know God and the biblical testimony who 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 Jesus is. That knowing isn't totally simple, right? It's not as though you just see and you know all the things, but it's real. And we have access to to actual knowledge about God in Jesus Christ. And in a, a world where there's so much cynicism and doubt about our ability to know, I, I think that's a kind of confidence that we desperately need, that our people desperately yes. need, and that we can return to mm-hmm. right? again and again. So incarnation and knowledge of God is is one of the most important implications, I think. I love to assign uh, Athanasius's book on the incarnation to, to students. It's an old book, right? So people sometimes find it a little intimidating to read a church father, but students always love it. Mm-hmm. They connect right mm-hmm. to it and they, and they love it. And Athanasius basically says, we have two problems. We're stupid and we're dying. And the incarnation <laughs> fixes those problems, right? It gives us knowledge of God, right? We've seen his glory and it attaches us to eternal life, right, in Jesus' resurrection as, as well. So the understanding of our God is concrete, mm-hmm. is specific. It's not speculative. Some of it can be speculative. But to claim that we can know God because of Jesus Christ is the thing. That's the center, isn't it? It is. And it means we know God like we know a person, right? Yeah. We t- Not just like, we know God as, as we are right. knowing the person Jesus. We tend to think of knowledge in a very kind of purely cognitive way, like right. li- list this set of facts or something. But that's not how you know a person, right? You know a person right. in their in their flesh, in their whole self. Uh, you know what it is to shake their hand or give them a hug. And you don't just know their favorite color is green, right? You know them. You know them personally. And that too is how we know Jesus. And so how we know God. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. I'll Said stand Jesus. by that. Yeah. So my first course in uh, my master's work in philosophy was analytic philosophy course. And my professor was a Wittgensteinian scholar. And he made reference to Jesus' statement in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he made reference to that as an absurd statement because he said, truth is not a person. (laughs) Truth is propositional, (laughs) said this analytic philosopher. Analytic philosophy or analytic theology is not my favorite style of philosophy or theology, though good work is done in those fields sure. and, and kudos to those who, who do it. But even in the philosophy of knowledge, right, these days, the idea that truth is simply propositional is pretty far gone. We recognize that we know things in much more complicated ways, right? We know things in our guts, right? And and that is a true, true thing. It's not just some silly intuition that, that doesn't have any any real value. It's in fact something we should follow probably a lot, a lot more. And there's interesting stuff in philosophy of knowledge about that as well. So 
But there um, is a truth in a relationship between persons mm-hmm. that we typically have a hard time talking about or understanding. But mm-hmm. there's a truth in this relationship we have with the person who is the truth. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Terabeth? I think so. I And I think the way you just put it, that we know things in our gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, life is experienced. Relationships are experienced. Mm-hmm. And I even love the way that Gordon Fee would even talk about the spirit. Mm-hmm. That the spirit is an experienced reality. Mm-hmm. That it's not an idea, mm-hmm. but we experience in our bodies and community mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. people. I mean, the spirit involves us bodily, right? Mm-hmm. The spirit of Jesus Christ, who yes. we know with our senses and in the word which testifies to him. And I think often because probably Western culture, if not just U.S. culture, right, is so Gnostic-ish, often because of that, we tend to think that anything we know in our bodies should be discounted. Right. But... That is not the case, right? right? And the Spirit, in fact, gives us that kind of, of bodily knowledge as well. So sometimes I hear people discount something they as though it couldn't be an experience of the Spirit precisely because it's embodied, right? You're being too emotional no, right. or that's just yeah. too touchy-feely uh, or that's just too emotive. That's theologically nonsensical. Right? Yeah. The Spirit made our bodies, loves our bodies, and dwells yes. our bodies, right? Is yes. bringing our bodies forward into, into glory. And I don't know why the Spirit would refuse to work with emotions or... Yep hormones or uh, whatever have you. That doesn't mean we always have to feel things in this really kind of ecstatic way. But sometimes we feel things in ecstatic ways, and that's a way of knowing. Yep. Pastoring people, um, folks often want to know, how do I know when God is speaking? Mm -hmm. Or how do I discern? How do I know if I am able to discern? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I often point people back to our bodies and remind them that our faith is an is embodied. It's an embodied experience. And that oftentimes our bodies know before our minds can catch up. And I do think that the spirit speaks to us that way. And so gut intuition is often discernment. I think that's absolutely right, mm-hmm. right? And in interaction with what we know about the person Jesus Christ, right? Mm-hmm. To, to go back to the yeah. incarnation, the spirit is the spirit of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and does not contradict him, right? They mm-hmm. they are one. And that is the kind of thing that intuitions can confirm yeah. for us. Mm-hmm. So God is in flesh still among his people mm-hmm. who have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit. I think so. And of course, at the right hand of the Father, whatever that means. But um, Yes, for yeah. sure. When I would teach an introduction to Christianity course, I would ask folks where Jesus' body was. And we're talking mystery here, of course. But they did not understand ascension Mm-mm. and the implications mm-hmm. of, as, of ascension, mm-hmm. that the enfleshed Christ is at mm-hmm. the right hand of God interceding for mm-hmm. us. Ascension is probably the number one in a basic theology class that I get a say what (laughs) about from students. People assume Jesus was human for about 33 years and then stopped being human. But that's not what scripture teaches. It teaches that he became human for our sake. He still has fingernails. For keeps. Exactly. He still has eyelashes. And we did not have a great high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, right? But one who not just used to be like us in every way, but who is still like us in in every way. And uh, ascension is Jesus taking his full humanity, including his body, right, to the right hand of the Father, as he will one day take us. So I want to talk about what this means for the pastor. We have a table here where we're going to gather pastors, and we want to think about 
what the interaction of pastoring is with this idea of incarnation. And in particular, we have pastors that are listening in that are called to very particular locations. We have small church pastors listening. Mm -hmm. We have large church pastors. We have rural country church pastors. We have urban pastors, neighborhood pastors. And oftentimes, I'm, I'm one of these pastors, we listen to pastors who have very different locations mm-hmm. than us and are telling us practices, ideas. And I remember early on in ministry, you know, we talked about how I was a student of Willow Creek, but I remember the very first church that I was a youth pastor was in rural upstate New York. And I went to a conference where I heard from other pastors within our tradition on how to grow your church. And not one of them really understood Mm -hmm. my context. Mm -hmm. We were a rural church in a very impoverished area. In fact, we were surrounded by trailer park homes with with wonderful families and children and students. And and these pastors, you know, I think well-meaning, you know, wanted to tell me how how to grow my student ministry. But I don't know that it would have worked the Mm -hmm. same way because I was in a different location. And so how does incarnation, the fact that Jesus uh, was born in the flesh in a very particular time, in a very particular location, grew up in a very particular location, and ministered in a very particular location, how does that impact, that idea impact pastors who are thinking about incarnation? Yeah, it's, I love that question. And I think you know the simple answer is incarnation means that context matters. Mm. Jesus's particular location means all of our particular locations matter. Mm. There's a, a deep sort of strand in Christian theology thinking about how incarnation is a sort of blessing on all of creation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also on the particularity of all of creation. And sometimes people will ask the question, you know, how can... Nazareth matter for rural New York, right? And part of the answer is it matters because they both matter, right? And incarnation means they both matter because Jesus has come to serve particular context, which then sort of ironically has this universal implication, right, for for every particular context. My husband is a pastor. His first appointment was similar to yours, a very small rural location. And we went into that appointment, I think, as though ministry were just cognitive, right, as though it were just Mm -hmm. a set of propositional truths. And we were sort of naively thought, you know, we'll preach the gospel and people Mm -hmm. will come and this will Mm -hmm. grow. and, And we weren't thinking about the actual people, right? And the actual difficulties and limits and beauties of of that particular location. Quickly, my husband learned to do so, right? But from seminary, we came with this almost as though it were just ideas Mm -hmm. and not the actual place that mattered, not the actual sad little church building with its crumbling bricks, right? Mm -hmm. That needed to be taken care of that that matters. Sometimes we talk about incarnation and the way it blesses all contexts as though that makes all contexts sort of themselves divine, hmm. right? Jesus's body is divine and maybe so sort of is yours. That's not that's not what it means, right? right? And there's a kind of freedom in that in knowing that incarnation blesses everything, but it is not the same as everything. The incarnation of Jesus is unique, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make every other human equally an incarnation of of God.
Incarnation blesses everyone, but it doesn't make everyone divine. Yeah, the incarnation was unique, yes? Indeed, yeah. Once in a moment point in history. Mm-hmm. Jesus spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, right? But he probably had an accent. They could probably tell that he, that they could tell that he was from Galilee and Judea, most likely. Maybe he looked like his mother. The incarnation is obviously unique to the Christ. He blesses all, but this also means that persons matter. Mm-hmm. That the folk in our pews as unique persons are blessed by Christ too. The incarnation doesn't make everyone divine, but it does make everyone precious. Absolutely, right? And so we are serving people, but we are serving persons first. So I think another implication of God becoming flesh is the incarnation forces us to take persons seriously as well. Absolutely. One of the big picture biblical concepts that the incarnation sort of specifically picks up and rolls with is the concept of the image of God, right? So that's a foundational concept for thinking about what it means to be human, every human created in the image of God. We get it right there at the very beginning of of scripture. But we're not sure exactly what it means to be in the image of God in lots of ways until we get to the incarnation itself, where we learn that Jesus is the image of God, right? Mm. That he is the reflection of the Father. And we are called to be in the image of God in the way that he is. So the image of God is both a kind of thing that can't be wiped out. Every human is precious and has dignity as an image bearer. And it's also a kind of calling, right, that we might grow into Christ-likeness and to bear the image of Jesus. And I think to bear an image, one has to have a body, right? Images Mm. are something you see and maybe touch. And so in taking on flesh, in God taking on flesh in Jesus, right, in God taking on a body, we see most fully what it means to be the image of God, and we are are, are drawn towards that. So I I love how the concept of of image bearing is both a a given, right? It's true of every person in our our church, no matter what, and it it gives them dignity and value and uh, rights, if you want to use that language. And then it's also a mission, right, where we're to grow into that image so that we can reflect the image of the man of heaven, uh, as Paul says in in 1 Corinthians. Um, Lots of image language for Jesus in the New Testament, and I think that's central to incarnation. That was one of the things that impacted me so much about your book, Marks of His Wounds, and the ways that we think about becoming like him Mm. and holiness in our bodies, that there's, there's a hopefulness to that, that we can. So you're a pastor in rural Michigan or urban L.A. or suburb of New York City, and the Lord has called you to pastor a particular people in Mm -hmm. that particular place, we obviously can learn from others, their practices, but the task of a pastor is to discern what it is the Lord wants to do through us in our particular locations. Absolutely. Yeah. And so part of what incarnation means is that you don't have to look like whatever the church in the most best-selling church book right now looks like, right? You should look like what your church in rural New York or your church in 
LA or whatever needs to look like because God made contexts and God loves contexts and God cares about contexts. And in Jesus, we see God in context, right? In the context of first century Nazareth. And we have God's love for for all of our contexts. And it's not surprising then that the church looks different in different places as it is embodied in different cultures and, and meets different needs. I think probably all of our contexts have characteristic strengths and beauties that we need to embrace in our ministries. And also probably characteristic faults, right? Things that tend to go wrong in this particular context that we need to attend to and try to disciple and and bring healing in those areas. Sometimes I think we we only regret the church's contextualness and diversity as though such a thing can only mean that we're divided from each other. But I also it, it we have a lot of divisions. That's a problem. We need to pay attention to it. But it's also the case that our contextualness and diversity is appropriate because of the incarnation. And it means that that every land and every tribe and tongue and nation and every weird little local culture <laughs> matters to Jesus. So in our next episode, we're going to have a couple of pastors at the table with us where we're going to talk about how they're wrestling through this. But you know, one of the things that I can't help but think about, Beth and Mark, is this this thing called live stream. It's not that live stream is bad. It is It is a tool. It is a ministry. But what are the implications? Yeah, I, I don't think there's a right answer. There's almost never a right answer because context matters and discernment matters. But certainly, I think we want to, if we're going to practice live stream, we want to attend to the importance of bodies and context, right? If we're live streaming, do we have a way to know who's on and a way to minister to them in the body? Maybe yes, right? Maybe it's someone in your own town who can't get out because of their health and that person needs a call. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also maybe no, and we may need to figure out ways to, to address that. The church is embodied and needs to to come together. And again, that doesn't mean we can't use these kind of digital tools, but we have to remember that incarnation matters while we're using them. Yeah. And I tend to think then that such tools work best when they pay attention to our embodied lives, right? Yeah. When they're not just a set of cognitive propositions, but they're about how we're handling things in the flesh, uh, how we're eating and relating to each other and getting around and organizing our day and loving the people we're, we're called to love. All of that's to say, right, we have to think about how the incarnation works when we use a tool like live streaming. Yeah. And I think uh, we want to come together in community in the church and as pastors and, and ministers in different contexts to imagine how we can do that in ways that are most faithful. That's always the task, right? To yeah. imagine how theology translates in ways that are most faithful. Uh, And it doesn't always look the same in every place. Preaching, for me, the practice of empathy is always so, so important. It's one of the reasons why I really struggle traveling and preaching, because I don't know the people. And it's hard sometimes for me to be empathetic for a context that I don't understand or know. Mm -hmm. And so I often will, you know, pray, God, help me Help me understand what these people are wrestling with or what they're going through, because pastoring for me is so much meeting people where they are in their hurts, in their pains. And when COVID-19 hit and we all went live stream, mm. I was in Pasadena and I will never forget standing in this 2000 person sanctuary, completely empty with just a camera in front of me and how hard it was 
to preach at first. Mm -hmm. And then it dawned on me. I remember, you know, getting ready to preach and realizing this congregation that I know, that I love, that I know what they're going through. I know their sorrows. I know their laments. I know the things that they're celebrating. I know the things that they're wrestling with. They're sitting in their family rooms the very moment that that camera goes on. And I started to call our congregation to actually watch live, Mm. to not watch later. I said to them, I said, if we're going to do this, let's do it together and be thinking about one another that when you're in your family room, know that that person who you normally sit next to on a Sunday morning is also in their pajamas, maybe, but they're in their family room, they're breathing, they're worshiping, they're singing, and we're all doing this together at the same time. That for me was how I got through COVID-19. And often, Mm. you know, now when I when I preach to a camera, which is a lot, when I do, and even and even if it's just me and the camera, I try to imagine those people with heartbeats, mm-hmm. breath in their mm-hmm. lungs, with aches, with pains, with joys on the other side of that camera. I remember a picture going around the internet of a pastor preaching at an empty congregation who had taped headshot size photos to the pews yes. of all his people of where yep. they normally sat, right? And mm-hmm. that that get right gets right back to that. Yeah. We're not we're not speaking into a void work, connecting body to body, and it's Jesus who connects us. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Those who take Jesus seriously, I'm quoting John Richard Newhouse here, those who take Jesus seriously end up always coming together yeah, Hmm. as an expression, as the expression of the faith, that the body of Christ that Paul talks about is not, can't be reduced to a metaphorical understanding of our Lord, but the, but Jesus Christ inhabits the body of his people. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm thinking that the, the, the separation due to COVID revealed two things. It revealed the absolute necessity of people coming together, but it also revealed maybe the vacuity of some of our profession, Mm -hmm. some of our confession. Mm -hmm. I was just overwhelmingly reminded during COVID of the need to be with others Mm -hmm. as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Beth, thank you so much for being willing to be with us on the pastor's table. Delighted to be with you all. Yeah, thank you, Beth. And as we mentioned before, We'll be having other pastors speak into this topic of incarnation from their context. The first two pastors you'll be getting a chance to hear from will be J.Y. Kim from Westgate Church and Jenny Wong Clayville from National Community Church. And these are powerful conversations designed to support your ministry, so make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And until next time. May you be blessed as you serve faithfully in the gift of ministry God has granted you.